certified health coach. I help people heal their relationships with food and their bodies on this podcast. We talk all about intuitive eating, disordered eating, food freedom, um, fat phobia, diet culture, female empowerment. And my goal with this podcast is to help you with your relationship with food, with your relationship with your body. I really want this podcast to continue to change the narratives for women and help you guys, all people, not just women, but all humans. I'm really hoping that this podcast is a breath of fresh air and something that helps you change your perspective, something that brings to you a message that you didn't hear growing up and a message that helps you find freedom and peace and sanity in your relationship with food and your body. And today we have an incredible, incredible interview with Sabrina Strings. She is the author of the book, Fearing the Black Body the racial origins of fat phobia and it's such an insightful conversation i 100 percent recommend that you guys uh, check out her work and check out the book order it on amazon or barnes and noble or wherever you buy books and it's a great thing to read while you're in quarantine and just also whenever it's an incredible groundbreaking book and really eye-opening and it's a really important part of this conversation and one of the things that one of the questions that she sought out to answer in her work was why do we so badly want to be thin and we're at a place in time where most people want to be thinner or wish that they were thinner or try to be thinner but she specifically was looking for the answer of why do white women so desperately want to be thin and we talk about that in today's interview and if you want more i recommend reading her book now before we get into the interview with her I wanted to read to you a recent testimonial from one of my one-on-one clients. We just finished up a three-month coaching container together. So that means I do have a spot available in my one-on-one coaching. So if you are interested in healing your relationship with food, I'd love to have you go to my website, karaskitchen.net, and apply for a discovery call with me. So I want to give you, I'm going to read this testimonial so you can get an idea of what it's like to work together. This is from Anna, and she says, I feel extremely fortunate to have worked with Kara on healing my relationship with food and my body. Through the safe space Kara created, we were able to work through issues I didn't even realize were connected to my relationship with food. Equally important, Kara helped me see the bigger picture of diet culture and how we can overcome it rather than succumb to it. I appreciated most Kara's willingness to meet me where I was at in my journey. Let me progress at my own let me progress at my own pace and help me build resilience when I faltered or better said felt like I was faltering. Something unique about Kara's approach is how well she delivers evidence-based information with compassion and authenticity. Her own story and journey made it so easy to form a connection and set the foundation for my recovery. If I had known what working with Kara would be like, I would have done it years ago. Thanks to Kara, I think and worry about food a lot less and have an arsenal of tools to help me cope with any curveball life throws at me. So if you're reading this and wondering if this recovery path is for you, it is. Gather up the courage, take a deep breath, and reach out to Kara. It's undeniably one of the best decisions I have ever made, and I will be forever grateful for the impact it's had on my life. So thank you, Anna, for that, if you're listening. I love you. So grateful to have been a part of your journey and reading this testimonial is so meaningful to me and any one of you who's out there listening who's ever thought about working with me or you're in this quarantine and it's brought up a lot of stuff for you and you're ready to finally be free you want to free yourself I'd love to hear from you I'd love to support you I'd love to have a discovery call with you so you can go to karaskitchen.net and go to the work with me tab and apply for a call the call is complimentary and you'll get value from it whether we decide to work together or not i know those calls are always incredibly helpful and you walk away with insight and value no matter what okay let's get into today's interview with sabrina strings sabrina is the associate is um an assistant professor of sociology at the University of California Irvine and a recipient of the Berkeley Chancellor's postdoc doctoral fellowship. 
where she held appointments in the Department of Sociology and the School of Public Health at the University of California, Berkeley. And she is the author of Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. Today is such an awesome interview. I'm really grateful to have gotten the opportunity to speak to Sabrina. I was so nervous because she's someone I have so much respect for and I admire deeply. So I was nervous for sure. And maybe you can tell, maybe not. But anyways, it was fabulous. And I hope you enjoy it. And let's just get right into it. Thank you for listening to the Love Your Bod Pod. Welcome back to the Love Your Bod Pod. Today, we have an incredible guest with us. Her name is Sabrina String. Sabrina, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. For those of us who, who aren't familiar with you and your work, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and you know, how are you doing today? We're, we're recording during this global pandemic. So how are you doing? Yeah, we can start with that part. Uh, it's the most peculiar thing to try to maintain a sense of normalcy and a regular schedule in the midst of this pandemic. Um, you know, I think for at least two weeks, it was really amazing to me if I got one thing done a day. I was like, wow, I really did that. Um, and then lately, I feel as if I've been able to sort of get back to a semi-regular schedule. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when you look at the news or when you think about the fact that you really should not be going outside and can't go most places because they're closed, it's it's a, a landscape that no one could have envisioned a mere two months ago. And now it's just become our state of being. And so everything that I do is always just wrought with a sense of what is going on and what will be what will come of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went to the bank the other day to pay rent. Um, we don't have like aside from mailing checks, paying going to the bank is how I can pay rent. And so, you know, I had my gloves on, my mask on, and at the bank, they had like these red pieces of paper that were taped down on the ground so that you had social distancing and they had put up these um, like plastic barriers between you and the teller. And I was literally standing there just being like, I, this is real. Like this is real. Like this is happening. This is what the world is right now. And just really being in it. Yeah, exactly. I think this is the the strange thing. You know, I was just, I was thinking about, I was like, oh yeah, you know, it would be interesting to go to the mall. And I was like, but the mall exists, but the mall doesn't exist. <laughs> like I was just thinking I would just go over there and walk around because it's a space to walk. That's yeah. outdoors. But um, I think it would probably be so dystopic for me to see everything shuttered that it would be best for me just to walk around my neighborhood. Yeah. So are you are you teaching classes right now? What's going on with the University of California at Irvine? Well, uh, we're, we've transitioned to a mode of remote instruction um, such that, you know, I think that the people who are teaching right now, which I am not, have really had to hit the ground running. Um, so a lot of people, for the most part, are used to teaching in-person classes, but now everything has to happen online and typically through Zoom or Canvas. And so I was speaking with one of my colleagues the other day, and this is her first quarter teaching. (laughs) Can you imagine? Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. And she's had to figure out this entire new realm of expertise uh, in the space of about two weeks. Wow. So, I mean, just really trying to keep her in my thoughts and prayers (laughs) because that is such a difficult task. But, you know, she's going to get through it. Everyone's going to get through it. Um, It's just not easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you still uh, coming on here to chat. I, wa- I really am excited to chat with you about your, your book today. And I, um, I can get how odd, like you said, it is to kind of go about doing these like normal things amongst this very unnormal time for all of us. So thank you for being here. I would love it if you would just like share with us like how you got into studying this topic. So your book is called Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. Like, can you tell us like, how did you get into studying this topic? Did it stumble upon you? Sure, not exactly, actually. It has a lot to do with my family history. I think that, you know, a lot of people after the book, The Warmth of Other Suns came out, were familiar with the fact that there was this mass migration of African-Americans from the American South to places in the North, the Midwest, and then also the West Coast. And it just so happens that my family was also part of this movement, this great migration, in 1960, 
when my grandmother came to California from Atlanta, Georgia, with um, you know her youngest children in tow. And it was really interesting because for my grandmother, who had grown up in this rural, segregated Jim Crow community that was actually on the outskirts of Atlanta, um, to move to a big city like Los Angeles, I mean, there were many things that she marveled at. But one of the things that really captured her imagination was like the peculiarity of all of the white women that she was meeting who were on diets. And she was like, why are white women on diets? <laughs> it's like, if you grow up in the South, um, and my grandmother was born um, during the, the era of the Great Depression. So she lived through a time period in which simply being able to have food was a triumph. Um, there was even a story that she told me in which she got um, some oranges for Christmas one year, and it was one of her happiest memories growing up. So to transition from that privation to California, in which there is not only a greater abundance, but this peculiar desire for people to avoid eating, this was something she could not wrap her mind around. And so she thought about this for a long time. And in the 1990s, when I was in high school, she would routinely question me about it. You know, she would like call me into the living room and she'd be watching one of her favorite soaps and she'd be like, Sabrina, come here. Now, look at Victoria, you know, like just various characters on her favorite soaps. You know, that one was from Young and the Restless and she'd be like, she is dying to be thin. You know, these white women are dying to be thin. Why are they doing that? You know, of course, I'm 16 years old or whatever. I'm like, I don't know, can I get a cupcake? Like, I just, I just I wanted to get out of the conversation. But years later, when I was working at an HIV medication adherence clinic in San Francisco, Baby Hunters Point, I ran into two women who I was supposed to be interviewing who were HIV positive about their use of these HIV meds. And they both told me that they would not take the meds because of the fact that the meds caused them to gain weight. And I thought people are willing to risk death. Women specifically are willing to risk death to be slender. And these two were women of color, actually. Um, and so there was something that was so animating about that for me, that I thought that it was what I wanted to study when I went back to graduate school. Mm, yeah, I mean, I can really understand the polarity of like going from just being grateful to have enough food to then seeing women who are trying to eat less when they have an abundance and how like, like peculiar that would come across. And then yeah. Hearing that story about the HIV patients, I, like, how did you feel when you heard that? Like, were you confused? Were you like angry? Like, or was it just straight up? Like, why do they want to be thin so bad? I suppose I was just shocked. Uh, you know, when the first person said it, I thought, you know, this, she can't be serious. Like I, I was just was thinking to myself, Oh no, she can't be serious. And then when I spoke to the second person, and then she affirmed it. And then I witnessed the conversation between them about what it meant to be able to maintain their figures. And it was, again, as I mentioned, it was two women of color. So these weren't women who were trying to be Kate Moss slender. These were women who were trying to maintain a figure that we would today call slim thick. Although originally people just used the term thick. Um, but now there's some you know, gradations that people apply to it. So yeah, they were just concerned about the fact that for the rest of their lives, if they were on these HIV medications, they would no longer be considered sexually desirable to the opposite sex. But of course, the rest of their lives would be much shorter if they didn't take the medications. Uh, so for, it was just so confusing for so long. And there was also another thing that happened, actually there were several things that happened, but one other thing that took place during that time period was that there was some news story about uh, a book that had been written that was exploring the origins of foot binding in China. And the very ethnocentric reporting that I was hearing on the news was very much like, oh, how strange, you know, these women have been binding their feet, you know, how, you know. And then, but I was thinking, but we don't know why American women and especially white American women are so devoted to keeping their figures so slender, which is also an extremely unusual practice if we were to be less ethnocentric about it. So um, yeah, it was, it was just part of a compounding series of events that led me to think that this was important to explore. Mm -hmm. And so this is like a huge question, <laughs> but like, so, so what's the answer? Why do we all so badly want to be thin? And I'm also curious, did you think that by seeking the answer, seeking to understand that you would then discover 
these racist roots and also religious um, roots. I was very intrigued when you were talking about, um, about the religious contribution as well. So yeah, I'm curious if you had any idea of what you would find when you started seeking to answer that really big question. I didn't know that it would go back as far as it did. Um, when I first started doing the research on this, I mean, effectively, I was what would have been considered like a thin study scholar or a scholar of the slender aesthetic, which was huge in the 1980s and 90s. You think about the work of people like um, Kim Chernin and um, Naomi Wolf and Susan Bordeaux. But I decided that I was going to look at women's magazines just to see what they were saying. Like, why were white women so interested in being slender? You know, and I thought in the beginning that I should look at the 1950s because, of course, in the 1950s, we had Marilyn Monroe. And then in the 1960s, we had Twiggy. So I thought, oh, there was something that happened in that interval. Um, what could explain, you know, what was happening at the tail end of the 50s or the early 60s? But as I started to dig deeper into the historical record, I started to notice that this actually um, has been going on for far longer than we realized. And eventually, I decided just to go back to the very earliest years of women's magazines and see what they were saying about body size. So already in the 1890s, let's say you have a magazine like Cosmo, because a lot of these magazines are a lot older than we realize. And they would very clearly articulate that um, some woman, let's say this woman was from um, Alabama or somewhere, and she was beautiful because of the, the rosy hue of her white skin. And, you know, she's from this Scottish Highland background, and she's felt just like her people. And I was like, what does any of this mean? There's no way that we could count on Cosmo to use this kind of explicit racialized language today, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but at the time period, Harper's Bazaar, Cosmo, the New York Times, I mean, it's like you think of all of the major publications that existed and they were all trafficking in this very clearly racialized aesthetic discourse in which they suggested that white persons were inherently more beautiful and more slender. Mm. And so then when you, like, I could see how this would not happen today, but I could also <laughs> see why this would have happened back then, just like knowing you know, the history of, of our nation. Were you, like, to what degree were you surprised by this? I was very surprised. I expected that they were going to start um, making claims about Black women's appearance. I, that, that I anticipated, actually, because I thought, well, something has to explain the racialized nature of this. But I didn't realize how much white people spoke about whiteness historically, because white people don't really speak about race and certainly not about whiteness very frequently. And as a person who is both a scholar of blackness and whiteness, I can tell you that the paltry <laughs> amount and sometimes substantive quality of the literature on whiteness is concerning to those of us in the field. Uh, and so to know that white people would speak so openly about what it meant to be white was really, you know, as Will Ferrell would say, mind-bottling. Mm -hmm. When you got to look at these magazines and you started to realize that they were very explicit talking about like Scottish or like Eurocentric features, like you said, like tall and thin and rosy cheeks, all of those things. Where did your studies take you then? Like when you got to the magazines, then where did you dig deeper? And I'm curious, like, when did you um, learn about Sarah Bartman, who I felt was like a very important historical figure? Yeah. So the dissertation was entirely, you know, thin studies for the most part. Um, but then when I decided that I wanted to turn this material into a book, I wanted to take an entirely different approach. And I thought, okay, the book is going to be very distinct from the, the first project because now I'm going to be digging deeper into the historical record to try to figure out why so many white women thought that there was this relationship between race, weight, and femininity. Where'd that even come from? Uh, why would they have been describing it in those ways? And so I thought, okay, we know that during the Renaissance that voluptuous women were prized. But we also know from my own research, um, I knew at least, that by the 19th century, slender women were prized. And so there was something that took place between the Renaissance and the 19th century. And so that was the historical narrative that I was attempting to trace. So um, it just so happens that as I was reading a lot of books about aesthetics during the Renaissance and they were talking about different types of beauty, they were also, especially toward the tail end, talking about black women. That was also amazing to me at the time because I wouldn't have suspected that black women would have been on their minds. But of course, this is the beginning of the slave trade. 
And so for the first time, a lot of philosophers or artists who were revered had the opportunity to access not just European models, but also African models. And because of the novelty, there was a lot that was being written about Black women's bodies. And for the most part, they were suggesting, physically, Black women are just as voluptuous and attractive as our European women. But of course, we know that over time, that narrative changed. Mm -hmm. So then what happened between the Renaissance and the 19th century? It was really the rise of race science. Okay. Because in the early days of slavery, um, obviously Europeans were going to the African continent and they were taking workers and then placing them in various colonies. Um, not very many black people were making it back to the metropolis of the various cities of Europe, which ends up being important when we're talking about Sarah Bartman. So in the beginning, this was just sort of the triangle slave trade. However, after a period of about 100 years, there started to be some concern about the obvious inhumanity of taking people from their native land and enslaving them in a colony. And so there were these growing debates surrounding slavery. Should it be abolished? And into this space stepped a lot of people who we now deem race scientists, but at the time were simply deemed philosophers, who were saying, there are natural slaves among us. And we can identify these natural slaves in the following ways. Right? So this is the earliest form of race science. Okay, it's like we have this hierarchy that exists within humanity. The Europeans are the first race, and then the Africans are the second race, and then they have Mongolians. And, you know, of course, this is not truly a science because it's based on some type of imagination of differences that exist between human populations. We now know that race is not scientific. It's not biological. It's a social construct. But at the time, it was enough to mollify otherwise concerned citizens, that slavery was absolutely fine. We should continue the enterprise of slavery. And part of what they started to argue over time, these race scientists, was that it's not just differences in physical appearance. Sure, that matters in terms of skin color and hair texture and eye color and all of that. But let's look at the behaviors also, because we can see, they would say, especially by the 18th century, that Europeans are rational, they're disciplined, they're self-controlled. But Africans are sensuous. They're into sex, they're into food, they're into drinking, they're greedy. And this explains why the rational self-controlled Europeans are slender. And the greedy, avaricious, and sensuous Africans are fat. And this is one of the mechanisms by which fatness became evidence of blackness, of depravity, and of the need to be controlled because they lack the potential for self-government. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's like, so where did it go from there? So they started to create these distinctions further than just physical appearance, like you had said, like hair, uh, hair texture and body size. And then they started to create it to morality, which is very mm -hmm. similar to the types of language that we hear today. You know, we think that a thin person is like disciplined and trustworthy and they're hardworking and they take care of themselves. And then we have these false assumptions that people in larger bodies are lazy. You know, they lack willpower and self-control mm -hmm. that they just, you know, lack moral character. So it's very similar to the types of conversations we hear today. So I'm, I'm curious, like, where did it go from after those distinctions started to be spread? Yes, absolutely. And as you might imagine, it went pretty quickly toward this whole question of diet, because there were actually a couple of things that were happening at the same time. So as the race sciences rising up in various parts of Europe, especially places like France, so I talk about France as one of the epicenters of race science. And there's a particular irony to that, because of course, um, when we think about, you know, race making France isn't usually one of the countries that comes to mind, and they don't even take census data surrounding race. So in any event, um, they were one of the major countries talking about this. When we think about the question of morality, as you asked me earlier, a lot of these understandings were coming from England. And so there was this entire movement led by this uh, proselytizing doctor by the name of George Shane, who said, you know what? what's happening right now in England as a result of all of the sugar and you know, sugar sweetened alcoholic beverages like sack that we now have access to as a result of the slave trade, right? I mean, he might not have said it exactly those ways, but that's the reality. The sugar was abundant because of the slave trade. But as a result of its prevalence, 
we have a growing number of people who are visibly like drinking too much and eating too much and becoming too fat. And he identified himself as one of those people. And so he said, I'm going to reform myself. He found out about this thing called a milk diet. And he started to go around and tell people that the best thing you could do for both your body and also for God, right? So that your body becomes a form of temple is to drink milk almost exclusively. Now, of course, if we were to do that today, we could recognize this as a form of eating disorder. But at the time, it was a religious movement. Um, and some of his earliest and most fervent adherents were women. So the English ladies, often these were women of the aristocracy. So it became very fashionable to limit one's entire dietary intake almost exclusively to milk. Uh, interestingly, the same diet took off in the United States about 50 years later. But one of the things that I think it speaks to is that from its inception, when people start to think it was really important to maintain the slender physique, they were using unhealthy ways to achieve it. And that's what we still see today in many instances. Um, so much of the conversation surrounding obesity is like, those people are unhealthy, fat people are unhealthy. But they ignore the fact that there are a lot of slender people who are unhealthy because they're engaged in these extreme diets that can be extremely detrimental to their health. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I completely think that um, we, ha we have so many recommendations these days about taking care of your health that if you really look at it, like just look at like the skeleton of what they're suggesting, it's disordered eating. It's like very yeah. unhealthy behaviors. And yeah, like people go to incredibly dangerous lengths to lose weight. So I'm, I'm just curious of your opinion of like, why do you think that we have this cognitive dissonance thing where it's like, we see, we will engage in these things, like you said, just drinking milk to be more godlike and to lose weight, but then we somehow like justify it in our brains as being okay. I'm curious of just like your personal thoughts on this. You know, I think it has a lot to do with social status. Uh, to the extent that the fact that this was both a moral and racial imperative, um, that being to be slender, I think people would rationalize it in any way possible because they want to be able to maintain a certain type of social status. One of the publications that I had come out after the book, um, but also last year, was detailing um, all of the ways that Anglo-Saxon women were talking about Irish women uh, in the 19th century in the United States and claiming that they were an inferior race who didn't deserve to have Anglo-Saxon male partners, who didn't deserve to be in their homes, um, who were low um, in terms of like they were low and coarse and you know, obviously not deemed as worthy as Anglo-Saxon women. And so much of this was based on the fact that they called them fat um, and dark-skinned, right? They were swarthy people, they were greedy people, they were fat people. Um, and so you can see then that people can engage in a lot of different ways of rationalizing a practice, even if it's unhealthy, if they know it means that they're going to have a greater social standing. Right. Yeah. Which absolutely makes sense. So, you know, there, which brings me back to what you had mentioned in the beginning about like women in China binding their feet. And then it makes me think about, I don't remember the exact name, um, but it's in Africa. It starts with an M it's a tribe and they actually force feed the women there to gain weight because if they're fat, it means that either their father or their husband is wealthy and can afford, and can afford enough food. And so hmm. it's sort of the opposite that we see right now uh, in the Western world and historically, but it's so much of it is about using your body as a way to represent your, your social status. Like your, like you said, like just how much money you have, where you fall in like the line. Yes. And so I'm, I'm not necessarily able to speak to the practices that you're mentioning in Africa, but one of the things that I like to talk about whenever I give a talk about my book is that objectification is objectification. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the standards that have long obtained in the black community for thickness, or if we're talking about the traditionally white mainstream ideal in the United States of slenderness. Whenever you put a particular body type at the top of a hierarchy, it's oppressive. It's even oppressive to those people who are meeting the standards because you know that you, have, you don't have the ability to maintain your social standing and maybe not even your circle of friends if you fall outside of that beauty standard. Yeah, totally. No, it's oppressive all around. And I had heard you in another interview, you were talking, this is sort of like shifting topics a little bit, um, but I do want to come back and talk about the religious piece that you mentioned. But in one of your other interviews, you had talked about how the government 
giving dietary recommendations and about portion sizes was like one more way in which um, the government tries to like control you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, and it's making me think about that now of how like we all try to control ourselves on behalf of like the dominate the dominant group in power. You know, we control ourselves, so we control what we eat, we control what we consume, control what we look like, and we eventually like internalize that oppression and do it to ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's uh, unfortunately I think that's um, a fair portion of what it means to be a woman. Often, um, and by woman I mean anyone who's female identified. I mean there are all of these things that we are expected to to look like, to do, and to be, and in many respects these are just tremendous distractions, right? I mean, there are other things that we could be contributing to the world, but instead of that, what if we could just lose three pounds, like the characters on Mean Girls, you know? um, It's just, that is just frequently a complete waste of our time and energy that could be spent on more important matters. Mm. So you use the word distraction. Do you feel like it's intentional that we've been given these things to strive for and be distracted by, like you said, if I could just lose this, these last few pounds, like, do you think that it's like intentionally distraction? Like someone, you know, had a mastermind about it, or you feel like it's just like innate human other is other where you try to like otherize groups. Um, I don't think there was a mastermind behind it, but I do think it's an artifact of women's oppression largely, which is that for centuries, uh, in the Western world specifically, we know that there has been a standard of beauty. And this is something else that I'm also talking about in the book, which is that in the Renaissance, they were trying to figure out like, but what constitutes beauty? And it feels like a very maybe sweet philosophical conversation about the things that we enjoy in life. But it was really the beginning of trying to create these hierarchies between high and low. And over time, they became more and more stringent such that beauty was no longer in the eye of the beholder, but beauty was a matter of ticking ticking off a number of different boxes. Okay, you look like you have this white skin, it's rosy, you know, you have these kinds of lips, this kind of figure, all of this effectively nonsense that really keeps women hemmed in. So what we're dealing with is centuries of this kind of oppression um, that it's really difficult to get out of because how do we determine a woman's value if not by the collection of her body parts? That's what we've largely known in the West. Mm, yeah, yeah. How, so I'm curious, like, how would you like to see us start to determine women's value? There's so much more that we could be doing. And you know, I, I wrote a piece about this um, not too long ago as it pertained to the use of yoga as a practice. Because yoga is a, a fine example of something that could be a liberatory tool if it's used in that way. Um, it's existed for thousands of years and it originates in the area that we now think of as India. And it was used as a spiritual practice for its adherence for centuries. And it's only in the past maybe two or 300 years that the postures, the physical postures, the asanas, have really been built up and taken center stage. And it's no wonder that in the United States, especially, where there's a history of yoga being used in a very postural way, that people imagine it as a form of fitness. Um, I gave a book talk last month, which seems like it was a thousand years ago because of the coronavirus, um, in which preceding the book talk, there was an Afro yoga session. And then there was the book talk and then there was poetry. I mean, it was such a beautiful event and it was put on by some researchers at a VUB in Brussels. And there was a woman there who was outraged that we would have a form of quote exercise while talking about sort of like the questions of race, body size and femininity. And I had to intervene and say, yoga is a tool for liberation. It gives us many different ways to challenge our bodies. It gives us ways to challenge our spirits. It finds, helps us to find connection amongst human beings and respect and compassion. Um, if we were to read the text and if we were to practice it with intention. But far too often, it just becomes a way for people to get cute again. Like, oh, let me use this and maybe look a little bit more like a model. No. Um, so there are ways out there. Um, some of them are spiritual. Um, some of them could be scholarly, um, like writing or journaling. You know, you don't have to be writing for um, a mass audience in order for it to have meaning for you and maybe the few people you share it with. So there are these ways that we can find our value and our worth outside of our bodies, but we just have to be willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm curious if you, if um, you, 
I know that you are a yoga teacher and um, I, I love that you're having this conversation about how we've sort of taken this like very sacred practice of liberation and connecting to um, that it can be a spiritual practice. And we've sort of turned it into this like, you know, fast paced, high intensity, you know, like there's yoga and weightlifting classes and stuff like that. And I love that you're having that conversation because I think it, it made me think, you know, like I think as someone who practiced yoga in my eating disorder recovery, I practiced a lot of yoga and it was really a helpful tool for me for my mental health wow. process, but it really stopped and had me think, you know, about like, how was I using that practice and was I honoring the traditional, you know, way in which it was created. I'd love to circle back to uh, talking a little bit more about the religious influences that had contributed to this. And so I can't remember the guy's name who had the milk diet. Okay. Um, yes. His name was George Shane. George Shane. Okay. And so he had this idea that if we just drank milk and we lost weight, we'd be more godlike. Yes. Okay. I'm curious of um, how, like more of the religious influences into this and how does that relate back to the racist roots as well? Right. So when I was talking about it previously, I was noticing that there was a difference in France and England and England was really the place where a lot of the uh, Protestant symbolism started to be infused into diet and body size. And what J uh, George Shane's, excuse me, what George Shane's experience had been was that he was um, a physician by trade. And he had been trying to like really build up his practice and he was largely unsuccessful. Um, and the way in which you built up a practice during the 18th century was that you went to pubs and taverns and cafes and you met people uh, who were sick and sometimes they would even have like a back room where you could minister to them, right? I mean, like, of course, it's unimaginable today. But he noticed that in, in an effort to build up his clientele, he was getting fat. Um, and he was getting sick, largely, you would, one would imagine, by all of the sack and other various types of alcoholic beverages he was consuming. And he wanted to make a change in his life. And so he found a change in his diet to be the way in which he could do that. And so he was able to, in some way, use um, his, you know, I don't know if medical knowledge is necessarily what he was able to apply here, but his faith, um, and then also his embodied experience in order to be able to um, convince others that, you know, as a person who was a physician by trade, this is a good idea. Um, you know, not for nothing, but there's a lot of ways in which even in the contemporary moment, there are a lot of people who are trained as physicians who are telling people what they need to weigh. And in some way, they're drawing on this history of the sort of like Shanian approach, like, because I am a doctor, I can tell you what you should weigh. And there is where we get things horribly wrong, which all of the research on sort of the flaws surrounding BMI are pointing to. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear you sort of describe how he was thinking that he could like take control of his, his, his life by taking control of their diets. And I feel like that's such a mindset that we have today, you know, of like, if I just like can eat right and lose the weight, then like all of these other things in my life will sort themselves out. And isn't it so interesting that we reach to that to, yes. to, to kind of like control our lives in such a way? It is. And the fact that it continues to have so much meaning for people, uh, despite the fact that there have been like, reports upon reports about the um, inaccuracy um, and basic lack of utility of BMI for being able to tell people about their health outcomes. Uh, but it's still used because, again, it's coming from doctors. So, right, we can see the legacy of someone like Shane, even if it's been largely forgotten and promoting those kinds of views. But to your point about the relationship between the racialization and the moralism, what happened was that a lot of these ideas that were circulating in various parts of Western Europe came to bear on the United States, right? And the United States is a country of immigrants after we obviously put aside the genocide of the native peoples who were already there. But you know, a lot of the people who were coming to the US were coming from France. They were coming from uh, the Netherlands. They were coming from uh, England, right? And they were bringing a lot of the ideas of the places where they came from uh, to the United States, such that a lot of the women's magazines, so to return to that point, that I was able to access from the early 19th century 
were very clearly putting together these racialized ideas with these moralizing ideas. You know, it was sort of like, if you want to be a good Christian Anglo-Saxon woman, what you need to do is show temperance in the face of food, right? Very clearly religious language, temperance in the face of food. Okay? And sometimes in the same piece, they would say, if you don't show temperance in the face of food and you want to be fat, then the place for that is Africa. You know, that, that place is not the United States. Wow. It was just laid out like blatant. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We would, that's the thing that I think continued to shock me um, about what I was finding in this research is that we have so many more subtle um, euph <laughs> like euphemistic ways of talking about minoritized populations, right. Um, that still go on in the media, but at that time they felt no need for subtlety because why would they ask? So they would just say things very blatantly. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's just like very interesting, but it's like, it all kind of makes sense when you start to learn about this, when you read your book, as you're sharing it with me right now, it's like, you can kind of piece together, um, how we got to where we are today. Yes. Yes. That's the thing. Um, and I, I think once the project was completed, I want to tell people that I, <laughs> I started crying because it was so meaningful to me personally, because it was a way of paying tribute to my grandmother because these were her questions and you know since the 1960s no less right mm -hmm. uh, but then when i started to go around um, and do interviews about the book and talk to people and especially fat black people about their relationship to the work many of them said they also cried because they had the sense that it was really telling them a story that they kind of intuited in a way like they knew that there was something racialized about their experience of living in a fat body but they couldn't really prove it or put their finger on it. And then they were able to find this resonance with what I had written about. So it's, I, there, there's a lot of ways in which it has been um, very meaningful to me. And I'm fortunate that so many people have told me that it's been meaningful to them as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see how, like you said, they just intuitively knew that there was a component, like a racialized component to this. And yeah. you allowed them to be seen in a way by writing this book by putting this book together. I'm curious of, given where we are today in the world of diet culture, in the world of wellness culture, we still, like while I absolutely see hope, I see that this anti-diet, this fat acceptance movement, I feel like there are more people than ever be, before talking about the bullshit that is the BMI. Right. About, you know, I had, um, uh, Dr. Abigail Segui from UCLA, who wrote the book, What's Wrong with Fat, come on the podcast and talk um, massively about, you know, how we see obesity as a public health crisis and how that's like not actually a helpful frame to, to look at this at, you know, we've, more people are talking about this than ever before. And I still feel like we have a lot of work to do, right? Like the medical system is not on board for the most part. They still use the BMI for a wide variety of reasons, but I'm curious mm -hmm. of like, how you see this type of information impacting change or impacting the culture? Did you have like a hope when you were writing it or how are you feeling now after having written it and having it, you know, be out in the world? On the one hand, it's been so heartening to see how the book has been taken up, especially in um, black studies, I want to say, and also women's studies where I think it's really found a home. I think that a lot of people are engaging with it and also sharing the ideas, sharing the work. Um, and I think it's meaningful for me and for uh, many others. On the other hand, I think I have been surprised by the limited interaction um, that I've seen with my work so far in the field of public health specifically. Um, when, I, when I have reached out um, to people you know, about the book in the field of public health, so many of them said, I haven't heard about it. Um, this is so intriguing to me. You know, this is amazing. Thank you so much. And this is not to say that there are no places where this is being taken up um, it, in that field specifically, but that it's been a much slower curve in that arena. And I think it's important for us to continue to push to have the public health um, field and also other medical spaces um, where sort of research and teaching are going on to think about these ideas. Um, and not just my work, obviously. I mean, you've mentioned like the work of other people, Abigail Segui, for example. There are many medical sociologists such as us 
um, who are out there saying, we need to think about how social factors are influencing health outcomes. Um, so within the field of social epidemiology, they talk about these as the upstream factors, the distal factors, or the fundamental causes of health and illness, right? Poverty, racism, sexism. These are the things we really need to be concerned about, much more so than what a person weighs. So there's still a lot of work to do on that end, but I think that you're right. It is uplifting that more people are thinking about it, talking about these ideas and trying to figure out how to make them meaningful and how to apply them to resist um, this traditional obesity science narrative. Mm. Like why you think that maybe it's slowly being adopted or like why it's not moving more, more quickly? Like why is it that so many people in like public health or in the medical medical system are not willing to really look at the research? So, you know, there's we have so much research to support that the BMI is like a useless tool, that it's actually more harmful than helpful. We have so much research to show, you know, from Health at Every Size, from Dr. Lindo Bacon's book showing that you can improve your health markers without losing weight. I'm curious of why you think that there's resistance or disregard or like not willing to fully look at this and say, hey, okay, maybe we got it wrong. I think it has so much to do with just the entrenched ways of doing and being. Um, as I talk about in the book, it has been at least since the 1980s when BMI started to be adopted, but arguably as early as the 1970s where people were pushing for its utilization, that there have been spaces in the fields of public health and other um, areas of medical research that they have been dedicated to using BMI. Um, to determine health outcomes. And when you're talking about anywhere from, you know, 40 to 50 years of a particular form of medical practice, that's hard to undo, especially because a lot of what people such as myself and others like Lindo Bacon, who is um, a wonderful individual and a frequent collaborator, a lot of what we have been shining a light on is that this is not working. But what we need people who are actual medical researchers to do is to figure out what would work. Um, how can we think about the significance of these social factors and prioritize them when we're thinking about attacking questions of health and illness um, and disease transmission? And that becomes ever so important right now because when we take a look at the reports surrounding the coronavirus, we know that it does not discriminate based on any number of social factors in terms of who can get it. But the people who are becoming the sickest, and the people who are dying the quickest are black people in the United States. We're talking about the people who are most marginalized, right? Marginal housing, frequently no access to healthcare, um, not a lot of wealth accumulated. So what we can see is that these social factors are the most important things in terms of thinking about disease containment, right? And keeping people healthy and living. But it takes the will of the people who are doing this kind of research to focus on how can we actually improve these situations. Mm -hmm. And I could see how like just using the BMI would just feel easier. Exactly. And especially because of the problem in the academy, and I'm sure that this definitely applies in medical research as well, of publish or perish. You got to constantly be thinking about getting papers out. And so this, to the extent that BMI is a readily available tool, people can publish papers showing a correlation between BMI and cancer, right? It's like, if weight caused cancer, we would have known about that when we started to see an uptick in rates of cancer in the United States decades ago. So why is there all of this research now trying to convince people that obesity causes cancer, right? Because it's easy to show that these two things are correlated, but correlation is not causation. Whereas when we think about poverty, that is a cause of illness. And that's what we need to be thinking about more consistently. Mm -hmm. And something that um, you had shared is how in the, it wasn't until like 1985, I believe, that we didn't even start to include um, Black women in our medical studies, that before that it was just white men. Uh, right. And, it, you know, I, it had a lot to do with um, the availability. And of course, as you might imagine, in some of the earliest studies, it had to do with people that they were simply concerned about, where this is our working population of, you know, white collar, white men. <laughs> and so we want to make sure that we're keeping them safe and healthy. And so we're including them in the studies. Um, but over time, I think that it was just one of those situations in which there was either a difficulty accessing populations, which continues to be the case today. Um, because obviously for 
a variety of reasons, including Tuskegee, but not limited to Tuskegee. Um, black people and often other uh, communities of color are very skeptical of medical research. But there was just largely this apathy that went on for decades. Uh, and then once it started to be a serious concern of Congress, especially, that we need to start having minoritized communities in these studies so we can look at the extent to which um, disease might be transmitted or you know it might be progressing in different spaces um, that was the unfortunate moment in which people were like oh well these poor people of color have higher bmis and that must be what's the cause of their illness right it's just like it's so facile it's so obviously false but it's it's a answer even it's a even if it's an incorrect answer, it's something to tell people. Mm, yeah. So I'm curious of, of this is kind of a big question to you. Um, how do you, what do you feel like the actions that we can take to help this? So you had said, you know, poverty is a, a massive contributor to health outcomes, right? Mental, emotional health, incredibly mm -hmm. influential, which is massively influential by um, whether or not you have like regular access to food or your basic needs are met all of those things. What do you see as thing, things that we can do? So this is the million dollar question. And there's no, there's no magic bullet. Um, you know, and I think that just that statement reminds us just how wrong um, the BMI and weight loss solution is. Like that's obviously not correct because there is no magic bullet. The communities are so distinct when we're talking about what might be happening in a various um, like native reservation in South Dakota versus what could be happening in a black community in Baltimore. What needs to happen is that the people who are there should be given a voice to say, what are the problems that are going on in the community? Um, because someone who is just a simple medical researcher may not know, even if I'm a researcher and I decide to go to that community to study it, if I'm not sensitive enough to listen to the people on the ground about the many different factors, um, the many different difficulties that are impacting their lives, then I'm probably not gonna get very far. Um, this has actually happened many times in public health, as you know, people who are listening who are familiar with certain studies will know. Um, sort of the whole top-down approach, we can figure it out at the top and then tell the smaller people what to do is, you know, patronizing and false. What we need is for communities to be empowered, to tell their stories, and to tell what they believe would be the most beneficial things for them where they are. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So just really listening and asking and being on the ground and seeing yeah. what would help them. I can imagine how like useless the prescription of, oh, you just need to diet and lose weight would be. Not all, like just people across the board, but especially yeah. those in lower income communities, like you were mentioning, like how fruitile and, and stigmatizing that is. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it, it doesn't at all get to the root of the problem. Um, and, you know, even if we were to have some other kinds of initiatives at, let's say, the, the federal level to have uh, a greater number of grocery stores in various communities, more walkable spaces, all of those would be great additions. And all of those could contribute to health outcomes. But without knowing exactly what's going on within a particular community, these things are still not going to be able to raise all boats. Um, we have to really be willing to take a microscopic view and find out how best to help people by listening to them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we are getting close to our time here. We are coming up on the hour. I want to thank you so much for this. And I'd love to ask you just a few like lighthearted fun questions to kind of wrap this up. Okay, let's do it. Okay. So you're on a deserted island and you can bring one movie one TV show, one meal and or like food item, and one genre of music, what are you gonna bring? Oh, wow, okay. Um, my genre of music is definitely R&B because I cannot live without my Mary J. Blige. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's see, the movie will be Clueless um, because I friggin' love Clueless and it will keep my spirits lifted, <laughs> right? And it'll also allow me to live perpetually in 1996. <laughs> Um, and in terms of the TV show, I guess I have to say, oh, oh, that's a, such a tough one. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is Veep because it was one of the finest television programs ever crafted. <laughs> so okay. I think those would be my selections. 
Okay. What about food or meal? And then also book. I think I forgot that. And I'm totally adding Veep to my list for your recommendation. Oh, oh, Veep is so good. And like, there are so many shows that have like one good season and then it falls off. Veep never fell off from beginning to end. Um, so let's see. You said also book. Oh, that one's really hard. Um, I feel like I want to say Catcher in the Rye just because I've read that one so many times and I know it's always comforting. <laughs> it's such a good coming of age story. It really is. Um, but then I'm also like tempted to say something like Tar Baby because that one also meant so much to me, like so much of Toni Morrison's writing. So that's, it's hard to choose between those two. Um, and then like food, if I had to eat the same food over and over again, um, let it be Thai food. Thai food is delicious. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite? What's your go-to dish typically? Um, oh, I don't know if I really have a go-to dish, but you know, like, you know, I go to, you know, just some small chains, like no fancy restaurants necessarily. And I go for like, um, like a green curry, like maybe like a Penang curry or something like that. It's, it's just, it's always a nice spicy experience. Yes. Yeah, totally. Okay. And then what is something that is currently inspiring you or something recently that you've learned that's inspiring you or insightful? It could be like a quote or words of wisdom or just something that's been like, you know, giving you some inspiration these days. Interestingly enough, being under quarantine has given me the chance um, or the mandate to read uh, (laughs) because there's nothing else I can do. And I just keep thinking about Jane Ward's book, um, Not Gay, Sex Between Straight White Men. I don't know if I would consider the book uplifting necessarily, but it was just so clarifying, so illuminating. It taught me so much about what heterosexuality is and how it's necessarily a a consolidation of power among men uh, and largely straight white men that I feel like everyone needs to read this book. So um, if you need a good read, and something that will really blow your mind, um, I would say read Jane Ward's Not Gay. Wow. Okay. So just, I need to ask you a question about this because my like alarm bells are going off in my brain. Okay, so, <laughs> so heterosexuality, so meaning men with women. Yes. Is a way of keeping power in place. Well, in the book, what she's talking about is the way in which men have covert sex with other men right in a way to control them to shame them sometimes it's just a way to have casual sex but all of it is quoted as not gay but because of the stigmatization of even talking about this activity it's a way in which men make sure that other men are able to follow a code of silence and a code of conduct that consolidates male power even if they identify as heterosexual wow it's so powerful, this book. I'm intrigued. Yeah. Yeah. Add it to my list. Okay. Right. <laughs> yes. You will not be disappointed. Wow. I actually went around with this book in the airport when uh, going to airports was a thing still. And you could, you could imagine the number of significant looks I was getting from white men. Uh-huh. That was a sociological experiment in and of itself. Wow. Yeah. I can imagine. Wow. Yeah. And I just loved how you're like, yeah, when going to airports was a thing. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. One last question. Advice for your younger self and you can pick any age that feels significant for you. Advice for my younger self. I guess if I could go back to maybe when I was in my twenties, cause the twenties are such a terrible time. We always romanticize them in the media, especially as it pertains to women because it's important for women to be young forever. But I would tell myself in my twenties that like, never forget, you're a fucking badass. You're <laughs> absolutely about to kill the game. No. Nice. So just keep doing what you're doing. Love that. I love that. And I totally agree with you. Like we <laughs> like the 20s were rough, man. My early 20s were hard. Like, oh my gosh, so so painful. You know, I don't think I became a normally functioning human being until after I finished my PhD. And I was like, "Oh, okay, everything is going to be all right." <laughs> So I love that. So everybody listening, please remember that you are a badass. Thank you, Sabrina, so much. This has been such a pleasure and a joy. And I really appreciate you coming on to share your wisdom and all of your knowledge with us. Thank you. This has been great fun. Where can everybody find you if they want to learn more? 
Uh, follow me on Twitter at S.A. Strings. I'm planning on announcing um, a couple of developments about my research in the next few weeks, so now's a good time. Um, so yeah, Twitter's the best way, but also if you're interested in some of the work that I'm doing with yoga, you can find us on raceandyoga.com um, and also Race and Yoga across all the social media platforms. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wait, don't go yet. Did you get a lot out of this episode today? Did you enjoy it? If so, one of the things that you can do in return is to go leave a ratings and review on iTunes. Those reviews not only make me feel really good, I love reading them, but they also help keep the podcast going. It helps it reach more people. It lets iTunes know that it's valuable content. And it really does let me know that you're enjoying it and listening it listening to it and want the podcast to keep going so if you are enjoying it would you please go leave a ratings and review on itunes and if you don't have itunes no problem maybe you listen to it on spotify or google play or or uh, stitcher but if you want to give back to the podcast one of the great ways to do that is to screenshot it and share it in your instagram stories or to send this episode to a friend who you think would enjoy it as well so Please do one of those things if you loved the podcast. It's a great way to give back and send a little virtual thank you. So I hope you loved today's episode with Sabrina Strings. I know I did. I learned so many powerful things from her and from her book. So thank you again for listening and I'll see you all next week.